Welcome to another Sweat Elite podcast episode. Matt here. Thanks for tuning in to this one that's being recorded from Tokyo, Japan, where two of us from the Sweat Elite team are based for a few weeks studying the elite Japanese running scene. Just a couple of days ago, the Tokyo Marathon took place that we were fortunate enough to attend, including the press conference just a couple of days before that. We've already written an article on our website that you can find in the show notes of this podcast about the press conference highlights. And the day before that, we attended a training session with an Ekaden winning Road Relay University team. Tokai University, that's based just out of Tokyo, invited us to a track session of mile repeats, which was a fascinating experience. Um, the detail that goes into those training sessions and the management is just another level, and we are about to write a couple of articles all about that experience uh, joining Tokai University for that training session in the upcoming days to weeks. So stay tuned for that if you are a reader of the Sweat Elite articles or a subscriber. But this podcast episode is of an interview I recorded a couple of weeks back in Boulder with Lee Troop, who is an ex-209 marathoner from Australia. And Lee now coaches Jacob Riley, who came second at the USA Olympic trials for the marathon over the weekend. Lee has been coaching Jake since 2007 in Boulder, Colorado. He tells plenty of stories about some of the huge hurdles that Jake overcame in the last few years in terms of injuries and other setbacks in his life. We talk a bit about the training that Jake did leading into the USA Olympic trials for the marathon, some of the key runs, training sessions, and gym work that Jake was doing leading into the trials. But most of the podcast episode is about Lee and his career as a distance runner. As already mentioned, he has a personal best of 209 for the marathon, 209.49 it was from the Lake Buell Marathon in 2003. Other personal bests include 741 for 3,000 meters, 1314 for 5,000 meters, of which he ran while preparing for the London Marathon in 2009 as a bit of a fitness test leading in, which we talk a bit about. He has a 10,000 meter personal best of 2751, half marathon personal best of 6100. So Lee's resume is extremely impressive, not only as an ex-distance runner himself, but also as an elite distance running coach these days. Lee was self-coached. He believes now, looking back in retrospect, that that wasn't such a good idea. He shares all of his reasons for why he believes this. He talks quite a lot about his training in the past, some of the key training sessions that he used to do. And one really interesting quote taken from this podcast episode that I'm going to share now, so this is Lee talking, is, it takes years to be a good runner. I was just impatient. If I had just let natural progression be the indicator for me, I think I would have run faster and I wouldn't have had the hardships that I did. So Lee believes that he became quite impatient during his career in trying to force results and not let sort of natural progression be the indicator for him. And we talk a little bit more about that topic as well, which I think everyone will really enjoy. So that's about enough for me in this podcast episode. Before I transition to the audio recording from a couple of weeks back, recorded live from Boulder, a huge thank you to the Sweat Elite subscribers that help keep the content coming at Sweat Elite. If you're interested in subscribing and accessing all of the almost 500 now articles on the Sweat Elite website about elite distance running training, which is thousands of hours of reading, check out the link in the show notes to see what you get as a subscriber. It costs only a dollar a week, which is only the cost of what a coffee every couple of weeks. So we really appreciate you subscribers and all of you that have rated the Sweat Elite podcast five stars, of course. If you have enjoyed a Sweat Elite podcast episode, we would really appreciate your rating as well. That's about enough from me. I hope you enjoy this podcast episode with Lee Troop.
Recording this podcast episode from Boulder, I have with me Australian distance running uh, legend, Lee Troop. Thanks so much for joining, Lee. Pleasure. You've been based here in Boulder now for over a decade. Yeah. Um, You have, just quickly, uh, you are one of only five Australians to have gone under 210 for the marathon. Also, some super quick times over half marathon, 61 flat, uh, 27.51 for 10K, on the track, 13.14 for 5K, which was an Australian record, which I'd like to talk a little bit more about in this podcast episode because yeah. that was in preparation for a marathon. I don't know where you got that from, but 31.28 on the road, that, that's a little skewed. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've got, uh, I've got his PBs written down here, and I've got a 10K road, 31.28, which is obviously a mistake. What is your road, 10K PB? Uh, 28.34. 28.34. Yep. Yeah. No, I was actually skimming through them going, that can't be right, so I'm going <laughs> to skip that one. But... Um, yeah, you've uh, you actually initially came out here for a year in twenty in two thousand and eight, was it two thousand and nine? Two thousand and nine to run uh, Boston and New York, and you're still out here in Boulder um, doing some sort of. Uh, you initially were involved in Boulder Track Club, but you've started a new thing, which we'll get into soon. But um, yeah, again, really appreciate you joining the podcast, and um, I'd really like to learn more about sort of your. Um, your ideas around training. You coach quite a few really elite distance runners um, now here in the US. Um, and I guess we can start off by um, talking a bit about how you've been helping Jake um, and how he ran 210 at Chicago last year um, and how you initially got involved with his coaching him and we can take it from there. Yeah, uh, Jake, um, he was with the Hansons group in Michigan, so with Keith and Kevin, and uh, he'd come out of Stanford. And, you know, I, I remember being at uh, the 20, uh, I think 2014 Cross Country Championships and, um, and saw this kid just blow everyone apart. And um, it happened to be Jake Riley. And like I said, he just joined the Hansons team. And so I had known him for, you know, a little bit. I knew of him. And um, anyway, uh, he moved here uh, in 2017. Um, so he'd had a couple of years with some Achilles injuries and he got married and uh, he was in Seattle and, you know, wanted to stay there. And Keith and Kevin were pretty keen on having people be in Michigan where they could train. And so he just got a little uh, disillusioned with things and um, I guess like a lot of people decided he'd jump in the car and drive to Boulder because, you know, the altitude and yep. the environment's going to make him better, right? And so um, so he got here and uh, we met and so uh, we started working together and unfortunately he just kept regressing, like he'd get ahead and then he'd regress, he'd get ahead and he'd regress and we'd gone through this process for, you know, for 12 months and he then had some other things going on, you know, um, unfortunately he was going through a divorce and, you know, so things were just coming at him left, right and centre and I got to a point where I felt that the only option he'd have would be surgery, um, particularly knowing that 2020 is fast coming. And so uh, we went and saw um, a sports doctor here in Boulder called Jason Glowney, who I'm good friends with. And uh, we went in and, you know, I'll never forget it. I uh, mentioned this to Jake before we ran Chicago Marathon, but we went in there and I'd said to Jake that whatever Jason decided that we were going to do, we would go. And if that was surgery, so be it. And I'm anti-surgery, but I know sometimes when you've got your back to the wall, it's probably your only best choice. And uh, so Jason had come in and been talking to Jake about certain things. And he basically had a Haglin um, on the back of his Achilles, which was affecting it. Um, and so basically they just, they shave it down. They, they cut it off so that it uh, takes the pressure off the, um, off the Achilles. And, um, but anyway, uh, in the meeting, Jake was extremely argumentative. And 
I was starting to get embarrassed and as Jason walked out of the room, I closed the door and I just said, what's your problem? And he's like, what are you talking about? And I was just like, why, why are you like this? And he's like, I've heard it all before, you know, every doctor's telling me the same thing. It's not like I haven't heard this. And I was just like, look, man. And, and it was in that moment that I just realized that everything that had happened, you know, obviously leaving the Hansons and relocating to Boulder and then, you know, going through um, his personal situation and trying to re-identify himself and still holding on to what he had in the past that just had all come at him. And I just said, look, you know, you've got two choices. Like if Jason comes in and says, we have surgery, we have surgery. And if, um, you know, you don't want to do that, there's 50 plus states in America that you can drive to. I'd get in your car and I'd set yourself up for the rest of your life, get a job and realize that running's never going to happen again. And anyway, Jason come in and, you know, he'd suggested that we have surgery. And so uh, we had surgery and, um, you know, he went through the whole rehab process of, you know, coming back of time off and then run a minute, you know, run two minutes. And it was an extremely, extremely long process. But, you know, fast forward everything that he went through, you know, we got to Chicago and, uh, I was confident that he could run two eleven, two twelve. He'd really got himself into some um, into some good shape. Chicago, not last Chicago year. Chicago last year, two thousand and nineteen. Yeah. And um, you know, and then two days before the race, you know, I pulled him aside. Actually, the day before the race, I pulled him aside, and you know, I just said, "Look, I can't do the rah rah speech tomorrow morning." I said, "I need to say what I need to say now." And, yep. You know, I basically just said to him, "I just said that you know, when he's out there racing Chicago tomorrow, you know, when he's sitting in that pack." You know, when he gets to 25k, I want him to take a look around and see who's in that pack. I said, because after 25k, that's when the race is going to start. And I said, you've got three questions that you need to ask yourself. And the first question is, is has anyone gone through what you've gone through? You know, and then the next question is, is anyone in that group as good as you? And then the last one is, does anyone in that group want it as much as you with everything that you've gone through? And uh, I'm always like trying to keep everything calm. I said, but once you get past 25K, I said, I want you to let all your frustrations out. I said, I really want you to attack them and take everything out on them. And just remember that they don't care. They don't know who you are and what you've gone through. They're just out there to beat you. So really turn that into a positive. And I just can't believe the day. You know, he crossed the line and he ran 210. And, you know, it's certainly up there with one of my top coaching moments. And, you know, since that race, you know, he recovered and he ran the um, club cross-country championships and was fourth and had led the race early. And, you know, his prep going into the Olympic trials has been absolutely fantastic. And, you know, he's one of the um, most dedicated and committed athletes that I've coached. And um, I'm just excited to see him on the start line healthy and with a shot of potentially making the US Olympic team. Yeah, that takes place in a week and a half. And you said just before recording that he's... Is he fourth fastest time going in? Fourth? He is. He's, the, he's currently the fourth fastest going in on times right. in the last three and a bit years. So. Uh, but then going in, um, obviously, with the times over the last 18 months, he's ranked number two. So um, okay. he's got a good shot. He's a great racer. He... He knows how to hurt. You know, he can put himself in the pain locker. And, you know, uh, one of the things that's been hard over the period of coaching is just getting him to hold back. You know, like not really putting himself in the well with training, making sure that he can save that extra little bit for for racing coming up. So, as I said, everything that he's gone through um, to 
be where he is now. That's a testament to him. You know, he's got yeah. a great girlfriend. He's tutoring. He's he's found balance and peace in his life. And you know, now running just takes care of itself. So yeah. um, it's been good just to see that transformation in a human being, let alone someone that I'm coaching and obviously trying to make the Olympic Games. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm looking outside now, and it's snowing here in Boulder. It's probably about zero degrees Celsius or 32 Fahrenheit. It's obviously going to be quite a bit warmer in Atlanta in a week and a half. Is Jake going? Anywhere to prepare for the different the changing conditions, or um, what's so, your thought on on sort of adjusting to the conditions of the race? So there's a misconception. Everyone's thinking that Atlanta is going to be hot and humid, and that's not going to be the case at all. Okay. So um, Atlanta can be quite cold. I mean, we yep. could have snow on on race day. Right. Um, but I've sent him down to Arizona uh, twice for a training stint. So we yep. went down there for about a ten to twelve day period um, a couple of weeks ago, and then uh, last week he went back for another week because we got smashed with snow. Uh, but the reality is now like the work's done you know we're yeah. coming in with a week and a half to go um, he doesn't need to go to a warmer climate he needs to sleep in his bed and he needs to eat healthy he needs to get his massage he needs to really just stay in uh, a place of normality and just let the days tick off because as I said the training's done so um, if he has to forgo a run outside and run 30 minutes on a treadmill that's not a problem yeah. uh, whereas two weeks ago when you're out there having to do 18 mile progression runs the last thing you want to do is that on a treadmill so um, we'll just, yeah, whatever the weather's going to be over the next week and a half here in Boulder isn't going to really uh, determine what we're going to change leading into the race because, as I said, there's only a couple of uh, key workout sessions left, but yep. everything now is just resting up and absorbing all the training that he's done. Yeah, sure. You touched very quickly on something that I'd love to get a little bit more into, um, and that's the 18-mile progression run, which your, uh, which is your sort of trademark um uh, key marathon preparation session that you prefer to do uh, ideally three weeks before a marathon and uh, six weeks before a marathon um, let's talk a little bit about that so how would you as a coach um, sort of structure that and how would you instruct people to be to be pacing that that run um, um, so basically uh, if in the perfect build-up um, we will do it at 18 uh, sorry eight weeks before and then with six weeks to go, we do a three-hour run. And then with four weeks to go, we'd go back to this 18-mile um, progression. And uh, the idea is, you know, basically we just start out um, extremely, extremely easy. Um, so like the first three miles is just warming up. Yep. They'll change their shoes. Uh, we also do it as um, marathon assimilation. So we put a drinks table out. Um, so all their drinks are there so he can practice coming through every three miles and picking up his drink bottle and consuming and right. getting his gels in. So it's um, really trying to simulate a race as much as possible. Correct. Yeah. The early parts of it are just so easy that it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it's, But it's still just practice. Practice makes perfect. So um, in the one that we just did recently, um, he started off with the first three miles quite easy. And then from three to six miles, uh, he had to run 5.55 to six-minute mile pace. Yep. Um, so knowing that three miles is 4.8 kilometres, um, he had to hit it in like 17.45 to 18 minutes. So again... Just under 3.45 per yeah, kilometre. Nothing, yep. nothing uh, flash. But then the next three miles from six to nine, he had to run 5.30 to 5.35 mm-hmm. mile pace, which was 16.30 to 16.45. Um, so he's obviously then he's like 75 seconds just in that three mile patch quicker. Yep. Then from nine to 12, he ran it at 5.15 pace, which is 15.45. Yep. Uh, and then so these, last... these splits are for 4.8K. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, his last six miles was at 5 to 5.05 pace, which was running 15 minutes to 15.15 for that 
4.8 or three mile section. So the last six miles is running at marathon pace. And granted, I've graded this about five seconds a mile slower because of the altitude. Yep. So, you know, theoretically, he was running like 4.55 to five minute pace. And five minute pace is 10, 210 for the marathon. Right. Um, what we did here um, was actually significantly quicker than what he did in his lead up to Chicago. So okay. um, what I did at um, Chicago was based on about 2.12 pace. Uh-huh. Um, and then what I've done here was based on 2.9, 2.10 pace. So yep. um, and he handled it extremely well. And, you know, like I said, he got his fluids in and uh, we had a couple of um, his other teammates jumping in to help him. Yep. Um, and, yeah, he executed it, um, you know, really, really well. And um, now the key part is just making sure that, as I said, over the next 10 days, he doesn't um, get overwhelmed and doesn't get overexcited. I mean, a lot of athletes are already have going to run their Olympic marathon trials race in their head a hundred times yeah. before they get to the start line, and then they're done. So with him, it's like, all right, you're fit, you've done everything right. Now we just need to focus on letting your body absorb everything, and you know, don't be distracted by everything else that's going on. I mean, we just saw a, a thing that came out yesterday where you know they asked you know maybe thirty people for their top three picks and. You know, whoever's down at the bottom is always upset that no one knows who they are, yeah, right? Yeah. And that they're going to set the world on fire. And, you know, they're all the things that he just doesn't need to know about. I mean, no one expected him to run 210 and no one expected him to be in the top 10 at Chicago. And he did that. And so I think there's something to be said about coming in under the radar, focusing on what you can control and then getting to the race and then executing it. Yeah. Awesome. I really appreciate you sharing those splits. Um, I'm sure the listeners would really find that super interesting. Um, I was listening to a podcast with Scott Forbles, obviously one of the um, uh, competitors that Jake will line up against and who's probably uh, in contention for the top three as well. And he was mentioning that the course at Atlanta is uh, going to be somewhat hilly. Yep. Um, you sound like you really try to stimulate the race as much as possible in that. Did you add any any hills into that course or is that something that you find um, is important or, or not so much or so we do a workout here it's called Telefarm mm-hmm. um, and basically uh, you run 5k as you warm up and then we it's like on a cross country mm-hmm. style course and basically it's four miles of hills mm-hmm. um, towards the tank and then when you come back it's a 5k press and it's slightly uphill all the way back to the parking lot and so Jake's actually done that a couple of times yep. um, I ran 209 doing that workout here Um, you know I was closing out the last 5k uphill in 16.15 at altitude after doing 4 miles of hills and uh, Jake broke 17 he went 16.45 it was fairly windy the, yep. the, the day that he did it but that's just a good indicator that he's extremely strong yes and jake's a cross-country runner so the course is certainly going to um suit cross-country guys because you've got a couple of tight um hairpin turns you've got obviously a lot of hills um and it's a looped course so you're just going to be consistently going around on that and so anyone that's used to uh, being comfortable with being uncomfortable and can surge when they're not supposed to surge and can run cross-country and know how to um control that that pain and that effort he's going to have a good day in uh in atlanta yeah sure uh, well explained and i guess transitioning now um to talking more about um maybe a bit of, a bit of your career and, and you were i guess um a big fan of hill training um some of the quotes that sort of i came across when i was you know doing some reading was my favorite session um is hills i used to drive from ballarat to geelong these are locations in australia in victoria every saturday for eight years to run on one particular course that i loved and there was also a quote which i'm not sure who actually said this but troop lived in the hills so you're obviously a 
a big fan of hill running. Yep. Um, has that changed, or like obviously the story you just told is that you still get your athletes to do it, but um, how in, how much importance do you place on including training on hills? And where do you fit that in? Is it like, do you, do you get people to run on hills on their easy days or is it a particular one session or let's talk a little bit more about that? Or long runs, for example. I guess you can thank Deke and Mona because hills yeah. were, were part of their diet. Yep. Um, I used to love training on the hill course in Ballarat and always finishing up Benson's you know, last two hills and you know going to Falls Creek and obviously really? you know, running all over hills and yep. come to Boulder and you know we do a four-mile hill climb up to um, the amphitheatre up Flagstaff Mountain and as I mentioned Teller Farm so yep. um, you know I think Frank Shorter said it best that hills hills are speed work in disguise and yes. um, whether you're just doing 60 second 30 second 15 second reps or whether you've got like a hill course of varying lengths of you know anything from 400 to 100 meters and you're rolling through i think the component of strength um is extremely underrated um yeah. you know particularly for distance athletes um doesn't matter how fast you can run a 400 and if you're not there with a lap to go mm. and so you need that strength to actually be there and obviously it's a fine line right yep. you know like yeah, you want to be able to close out. I, I never really had uh, top-end speed. Like, I could close out in maybe 59 to 61 seconds in a 400, you know, and the Africans are closing out in 52, 53, right? So, yep. but I would give myself every chance to be there up until, you know, the, the final stages. Um, and that, for me, worked. I wasn't a speed guy. And, you know, I found getting on the track to be um, extremely mundane. Um, I like to get out into the hills and just crank the hills and, you know, we used to do, you know, our long long runs, our long 36, 38K Sunday long runs in Ballarat, just rolling hills. So yep. even though we were running easy, we were constantly always running hills and then we would do workouts on hills. So I have my guys doing hills, you know, at least, you know, as far as a workout goes, at least every two weeks. Okay. Um, but I'll always encourage them for their Wednesday runs and Sunday runs to be running, running over hills. So just the added benefit of just like when you're tired and fatigued and you're hitting a hill, just that extra gear that you've got to try and find, but then also mentally yep. push yourself to get up. I mean, and it's ironic that it's just, it's an easy run, but it's yeah. still an effort to get up. So um, for my athletes, like I said, we try to factor um, as much as that we can into our training and, you know, and they're hard, like they're not yep. workouts where, you know, you just, you just roll out, you know, say six or eight 60 second hills. Like we do 2K hill climbs, 4K hill climbs, uh, four mile hill climbs. Big variety. Um, so yeah, yeah, there's a there's a big difference, but it depends also too on the racing that's that's coming up, sure. you know, as to the relativity of like what the, what that hill workout would look like and what they need to do. So in track, we will just do repetitions, but with um, obviously cross country and with those that are doing road and doing marathons, and that's when we do the longer stuff. Yeah, sure. Something you actually talked a bit about um, when I asked about the eighteen mile. Uh, tempo was a three-hour run that you drop in. This is for, is this just for marathon training, or would you advise that for half marathon as well? You do a th- it was at six and how many and how long to go before the race would you do that? Uh, so six weeks before six three-hour run. But again, yep. like there's there's got to be like um, you got to be able to balance where it depends on what races that you do leading into it. I mean, yep. you can't get the perfect prep where you're like, I'm definitely going to do this race at twelve weeks out, and because yep. things things vary and you know obviously depends on where the races are going to be in the date so yep. um i'll definitely do it six weeks out yep. 
But if they've got a big race five weeks out, then I'd move it seven weeks out. Sure. You know, but they would definitely do a three-hour run anywhere between five and seven weeks to go okay. based on their racing. And then the progression run that we do, the marathon progression run, then that'll be either side of that yes. as well. So, yep. yeah. So it, it varies from athlete and um, dates of racing that are yeah, coming Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so let's just take me as hypothetical. I'm currently training for a race where my race pace will be 325 per kilometer or around about 525 530 per mile what in that three hour run what sort of effort or pace or how would you judge that um effort wise or pace wise how would you prescribe that in terms of what i should be doing for that run like so i'm trying to get a gauge as to what how fast that run should be. yeah whenever we yeah. did it it was just time on legs okay. like it was never sure. like so when we do that marathon progression when we do the three hour runs like it's all off heavy mileage so you're yeah. just tired and the idea is just to stress the body yeah. um in australia uh we would do it without any hydration and nutrition so you're just you're depleting yourself you know yeah. and you're just you're trying to get your body to be able to adapt and cope being in a fairly dehydrated, tired state of, yeah. of doing that. You need a couple of days to recover. Um, being at altitude consistently, it's a little bit harder because, you know, we're preaching to guys to be hydrating consistently and to be getting, you know, their minerals and vitamins in and um, making sure they're taking iron and, and everything like that. So um, I can't really say we're going to do a depleted state and yeah. get out there because then the, the consequences to that will be that it might not be a couple of days to recover. It could take them a week a to recover. So yeah. I'm a little bit more sort of um, studious with that. Um, but, you know, on our long runs, I'm always giving them the hydration and making sure that, you know, they're drinking at least every half an hour. So for Jake, he likes to roll it a little bit. So, okay. um, But I always try to make sure that I pull the reins in a little bit just so that he doesn't you know do it too hard um, he's also a guy that when he's out there he just gets into this competitive state and then yeah. before you know it he is, he's rolling off like 520s you know yeah. it's just like hey man it's an easy run like yeah. I'm happy with 630s like, let's while it back legs, yeah. so I've sent him up to Magnolia Road to do a few runs I mean he hasn't been able to do it the last couple of Wednesdays because of the weather but you know that was like an hour 40 um, up at like nine and a half thousand feet just rolling hills and just trying to get it easy and the other um, stimulus I wanted him to get was just the impact of the downhill yep. um, you know because obviously in Atlanta yep. that's going to be yep. another thing that athletes are going to have to get used to is not how well can they run up the hill it's how well they can recover and keep pushing on the downhill so but yeah the, the three hour runs just time on legs yeah sure um, I, I, I want to talk a bit about a quote that um, that you've uh, I guess mentioned at some, at some somewhere along the along the lines that I really thought was interesting not having a coach is where I hurt myself a lot now when I first read that I thought hmm you were self-coached, you ran 209 and all the other times I mentioned, which are obviously very high level, very, very elite. Um, why do you think that, um, that, that that it hurt you a lot? Do you feel like you could have potentially run a little bit quicker or, or if you had someone advising you? And I guess I was curious to know more about that that, that thought. I basically, like, like, deep down I know that I should have been faster than what I ran. You know, okay. like I, I trained to be a 206, 208 guy. I mean, Deke ran 27 and Mona ran 208 and yep. I didn't look at them that they were any better than me. You know, and I certainly didn't look at them thinking that I'm a heck of a lot better than them. I just looked at them and was like, well, if they can do it, I can do it sure, too. And, sure. You know, I think for me where things changed a lot, um, particularly in uh, 2003, was I'd gone to Japan. Um, I'd run 209. I went through 30, 30 kilometers with um, with the lead pack, and Mono was pacing, and we were on um, basically two seven 
pace. Right. Um, we'd gone, we're pretty much on 2.6 high, 2.7 pace. And I, he dropped out at 30K and I remember him screaming, going, you know, come on, hang in there. And I said, the record's going down today. Like, I just felt a million bucks. And I hit 34K. Sorry, is this Lake Biwa? This is Lake yeah, Biwa, Yeah, right? this is where you ran your personal best. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I hit 34K and all of a sudden I was like, damn, I feel like I've been hit by a truck. And all of a sudden I was off the pack, I was on the pack, I was off the pack, it got stretched out. And then I just started grinding and um, I ran 209 and I'm just like, look, that that that's not right. So I decided to change my whole training around after Lake Biwa going into uh, London the following year. And I started, you know, uh, running... 150 miles a week so 240 k's a week yep. and i was training like a like a, a crazy guy and you know i went to japan uh, to beppu to pace the marathon and you know i think we had to run like 64 or 65 and i ran that easily off like my 240 k weeks and yep. you know i went into london and i was extremely confident that i was going to run you know 2728 and um we took off and you know, I was 63.12 through halfway. Yeah. I was 90.02 at 30K. And unfortunately, we just had a really bad day. Like, it rained. And when we come after the Tower Hotel um, up onto the Thames, it was a howling headwind. And everyone dropped two to three minutes. Like, it just... I was with Stefan Baldini, who went on to win the Olympics that year. And we ran over the cobblestones. And um, Stefan's a lot stronger than me. Like, he's a lot bulkier than I am. Yeah. And... Um, he got this break on me and as we sort of got up onto the Thames that 10 metres became 20 and 40 and it was like I took two steps forward you know three steps back and I crossed the finish line and just broke 210 I ran 209.58 and I was shattered you know because I knew how I knew how good a shape I was in and when I look back on my career that was the day that went you know like that was the day that I really felt that I was going to do something amazing and when we got up onto the Thames it, I didn't get tired because of like my lack of training I got tired because of the weather you know like I was coming in at a whopping 56 kilograms and you know when you're running into a, a wind that was as strong as that and the rain that was coming down I just wasn't strong enough to push through and I mean Stefan was with me and he ran like 2829 like I mean he 2.9 I think yeah no, high two eight. So he dropped two minutes, I dropped three minutes. But he ran on to win the Olympics, yeah, right? Yeah, there you go. And then <laughs> after that, I was so angry, so then I started training even harder. You know, and it's hard to think, well, how can you train any harder when you're already trained at 240Ks a week? And I then prepped for um, for Athens and, you know, I went and did a, a six-week uh, altitude stint. So I trained here in St. Moritz, uh, sorry, in Boulder, and then I went to St. Moritz and... You know, and then I went straight into the heat of um, of um, uh, Athens, and I just didn't recover. And so, basically, that whole year of just like smashing my training, I went into the Olympics like a car that has five gears but only four working. And right. I ran two seventeen or whatever I ran, but I ran that from start to finish. Like there was nothing slow, there was nothing fast. And when I went out with the lead pack, like normally they throw in some surges in the first 5K just to test the, the field and I couldn't handle one of them, right. you know. And so what I mean by having a coach, a coach would have stopped that stupidity. Yeah, sure. A coach would have just said, look, that's crazy talk. Like common sense is what we need to do. You know, this is what you did and this is what we need to do. And, you know, I debuted running 211 yeah. at London, right? Yeah. I then went to Rotterdam, ran 210. Yep. All right. You were and very I, consistent. It was just it was yeah. simple stuff. Like I've yeah. run under two twelve six times. Yeah. And but I was trying to find that extra 
1% or 2% and I was prepared to train harder than I've ever trained when I didn't need to do that. Mm. I needed to keep doing what I did, mm. but do it better. And that's the thing I preach to my athletes is, you know, consistency is key. And whatever you've replicated once, you do it again, but you do it better. Yep. You know, if things need to be changed, you do it, but you've got to stay within a 10% rule of thumb because it worked. And the only way you get better is with more consistency, you know, more years. I mean, that's what it takes years to be a good runner. I just unfortunately was impatient and I was trying to get there faster. And if I just let natural progression, you know, be the indicator for me, I think I would have got there. And I seriously think I probably wouldn't have had the hardships that I, that I had, but at the end of the day, it's all on me. I made that choice and that's what I believed I needed to do. And you know, that is what it is. Yeah, sure. You mentioned that you were going into London that, um, sort of two Oh nine fifty six or 58, whatever it was. Um, really feeling like you were going to go 207, 208. Was there any particular training sessions that you did before that, if you remember, that you that really indicated to you? Oh, I guess I'm trying to understand and get a feel for, like, being right around that two, you ran under 212 six times. Like, at that point in time, what made you think, I'm actually a level above here? Because obviously, clearly the weather was the factor yeah. that slowed everyone down in that race yeah. and everyone lost between sort of one and three minutes. Yeah. I'm just really curious to, to know... Um, lining up on that line what made you feel like you were ready to go that time was it particular workouts was it the way that you were recovering or what what was it if you recall it was a while ago I know but yeah yeah I mean that 2004 like I just seemed to be hitting like all my training well I'd done three stints at falls yeah um what I was doing was I would do a two and a half hour run but then I would run my last 30 minutes at um, at marathon pace. Yeah. So I, I was trying to run between 30 to 31 minutes. And if anyone's familiar with the two and a half hour run that we do up at False Creek, and you know that I've run 30 to 31 minutes for the last 10K, um, having to, you know, basically come up off ropers and around, you'd realize that I was in Seriously. real good shape. Right? Yeah. And so um, I was doing that, um, I don't think I was doing it every week. I think I was doing it every second week. Um, and so I was working off a cycle of like, like one easy long run then the following week doing that as a workout um, but then skipping a Tuesday and just doing it as an easy run so I was sort of working off a two week cycle but when you're up at Falls Creek and you're doing Fitzy's Hut and you're doing Mount Mackay and I'm banging out these long runs like you don't need any other indicator like you you know you're fit you just got to go um, for it yeah and I, look I loved racing like yeah. I, I would always I'd get the work done I would just sort of back it down a little bit um, I think the thing that is difference between a championship race and a city race is you know the weather, you know the course, you know who the field's going to be, you know what the pacemakers are doing, and so I could control that variable. The thing that I couldn't control when you go to championship races is you're not really sure of the weather. Um, there's no pacemaker, so you don't know how the runners are actually going to approach the race. Uh, there's usually a holding camp that you, you need to go to. Um, we're going into winter when the rest of the world's going into summer, so you've yeah. got to travel. And um, again, it gets back to having a coach where I could properly you know, plan that. Yes. I mean, I used to bounce ideas off Mono, but at the end of the day, like if I didn't agree with what he said or I didn't like what he said, I'd do my own thing. Yeah. Which with a coach, there's a different level of respect. Like a coach tells you what to do and you listen. Yeah. You know, like, um, but for me, because I've sort of had gone at solo for such a long time, I know I just had these little idiosyncrasies that would always mm -hmm. just creep in that I would always fall back into that trap. But I also could control the summer. You yeah. know, like I'd go up to Falls Creek in November before Zadapak. I'd go back up after Zadapak to January. Then I'd go back up in March. And, you know, I just, that 
that, that period in there I could control and I really liked. And the, the training wasn't flash. It was just hard. You know, yeah, like yeah. everyone had done it. Like Clarkie had done it. You know, Moner had done it. I and mean, we used to do stupid things. Like Moner and I one day started off at Mount Beauty <laughs> and we ran all the way up to Falls Creek and we realized that Clarkie had done that. So then we decided to keep running to Mount Mackay um, just for the sake of doing it, right? Like so basically we ran <laughs> like 36K that? of like all uphill. Yeah, right. Um, but they were the things that, you know, certainly added to the training because it was fun, it was enjoyable. You yeah. had other people around. I'm a really strong advocate for group training. Um, yeah. I've seen the success of lots of athletes, you know, whether it's Kenyan athletes or particularly here in America, there's a lot of professional groups now and you see the benefit of that group training. Yeah. Um, I think Falls Creek is certainly a, a crown jewel where a lot of people go up there. If they're smart about it, they can get the benefit of that, uh, that group training effect. Yeah. Awesome. We quickly, uh, sorry, we very briefly touched on your 5K uh, national record at the time of 13.14, which, correct me if I'm wrong, was in preparation for a marathon. My debut at London. The debut marathon, right. Um, Now, I listened to an Inside Running um, podcast about how that was a little bit of a surprise to you. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about um, how you like how that came about. I mean, you're obviously training for a marathon, but and you also mentioned that you're not much of a speed guy. How do you like? Did, was it a surprise? And looking back, um, how do you think that sort of came about to be able to run such a quick five k off marathon training? Like, were you doing any specific workouts at that pace, or how did that? Again, no. it's a while back, and I hope that it's something that you can remember. But yeah, yeah no, I mean, basically <laughs> for us, I mean, like we did monofartlic Tuesday, Dick's quarters on. Thursday, and then yep. we did the Benson Hill course on Saturdays. Like yeah. that's exactly what we did week in, week out. And you know, um, I remember coming off '98, so I'd had the Commonwealth Games, and you know, I, I did all right. You know, like I was sixth in the seventh in the 10k and sixth in the 5k. You know, I went from a heat to a to a uh, sorry a final to the final of the 10k to a heat of the 5k to the final of the 5k, and I I ran 20k in three days, right, or 20k in four days, and. You know, I sort of come off that and, you know, did Zatapec, you know, won Zatapec. And then um, I went to Tokyo and ran uh, the Tokyo half marathon. And I knew I was in good shape. Like, I went with the leaders and it was really slow. Like, we went through the first 10K in 29-22. And, like, there was a group of, like, 30 people. Like, there was, like, Moses Tanui and um, Arturio Barrios and, like, just all these guys. And, you know, we got to 14K and I looked around and I just said, I'm going for it. So I just took off and... I led all the way up until 100 metres to go and, you know, I ran 61.01. I swear it was 60.59, I saw the clock. <laughs> uh, but I got beaten by a Japanese Kenyan. But I ran my closing 10K in 28.34 yeah. and ran my final 5K in 14.09. So I knew I was I was in good shape and I came back and I ran the World Cross Trials and I ran terrible. Um, I was just flat and tired, but I was like, all right, I've got the Sydney 3K and I've got the Melbourne 5K. That'll sharpen me up a little bit before I go to World Cross and then uh, I'll get ready for uh, for London. And so I went to Sydney, um, you know, Friday night before I'm uh, having a pizza and a couple of beers as I always (laughs) did on a Friday night and jumped on a plane Saturday and flew to Sydney and uh, jumped in the race and I'm running along and all of a sudden we go through 1500 and it's like 350, 351 and... I was just like, all right, I'm just going to go with it. Go with it. And then yeah. we got to 700 to go. And I looked along and there was like Ben Mayo, who was number four in the world. And then there was Lucas Kipkoska, who was number two in the world. I was like, let's go. So I just took off and I went to the lead with 700 to go. And I ran as hard as I could. And I ended up finishing third and ran 741. And I remember Mona running across the track going, you broke the Australian record. And I'm like, nah, nah, 
<laughs> that didn't happen. He goes, no, no, you did. And I'm like, what is the Australian record? <laughs> you didn't, you didn't know. I had no idea. Like, I would never have thought I'd run 741, right? And um, anyway, I missed it by. Do you remember what your 10. goal was before that? Sorry, what was your goal before that? Did you have one, or was it just get well, in there? Eight and minutes, race it? run fast, and right. <laughs> I, I, I'd run eight minutes like quite a few times. Okay. You know, so I'd run like I went in '98. I was staying with Pat Carroll, and I just jumped into a Queensland like um, club meet, club series, yeah. and I ran seven fifty one by myself. Okay. You know, and so I, I, I thought eight minutes with the marathon training I do would be great, and that yeah. would pick me up for the five k. So that's that's all I was thinking because I've yeah. been training hard. Um, so I ran 7.41 and then there was this buzz about Clarky's record and like it, it's surreal to talk about it because like look at the legends before me yeah. you know like yeah. you, know, you had Norwood and Lloydie and you know Painter and you know um, Steve Austin and like you, you just had these like superstars and I'm just like nah like 1330, right? Like, like, let's just shoot for 1330. And, you know, I'd run 1336 and 1334, and so I figured, you know, 1330. And then Monitor in 96 ran 1325, and he's like, no, no, you'll blow it out of the water. And I was like, all right, well, let's, we'll go 1325, 1330. And then the same thing happened. Like, we had uh, Graham Hood pacing, and the pace was spot on. And um, what was really weird was between the second and third K, the pace was super slow. Mm. And so we got to 3K and I was like, you know what? I'm going for it. So I just went to the front with five laps to go. Um, and that's pretty much how the race unfolded. Again, it was just me and Luke kicked Koskai. Yep. Um, and then with 200 to go, Luke turned on the after jets. And you know, I think he ran 13.11 I was 13.14. And, you know, like, it was just one of, like, I, I really didn't appreciate it at the time because A, I didn't expect it, but it was never a goal. Yeah. And sure. there's a lot to be said about, like, not overthinking. Like, I wanted to race Luke and I wanted to run fast. I wanted to hang on for as long as I could. I knew that if, um, you know, if it got tough, I'd have my marathon strength to get me over the line. And, you know, it just it played out the way it played out. And, you know, I crossed the finish line. And like I said, it was just weird. Like, I, I still look at it now and, like, I, I feel like I just didn't deserve it. You know, like, yeah. it just it happened. I just happened to be in the right race at the right time, which we talked about London, you yes. know, how I really wanted it. And I just didn't get the right race on yes. that day because of weather. So, you know, they're the things as athletes that you've got to, like, it's ebbs and flows. And yeah. on that day, I got something that I didn't really think that I deserved yeah. um, compared to something that I really felt that I deserved. So, um, yeah, it, it, and then I look back on it, and I guess years later, and, you know, obviously when Len Johnson wrote an article about people that changed the landscape of Australian distance running, and, you know, he paid credit to me um, that this record had stood for such a long time and everyone had got to the point where... They didn't see it was going to happen. And then you think after me, you know, we had Mottram. And mm. then all of a sudden, you know, like you look at now with um, with Patrick Tiernan and like the McSween. list just goes, McSween, like yeah. it just all of a sudden, like it's just like, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, I sort of took a step back after Len had written that and I thought about it a little bit and, you know, it was quite, quite humbling because yeah. like I said, as an athlete in the moment, you want more and you want to do more and, it's only when it's all gone and there's only the dust that's left after it's settled that you just sort of then have to look at what you did and work out what you're proud of and what you're not proud of. And that was certainly a, a moment that um, I was surprised but unbelievably proud of. You yeah. know? And then I got to be great friends with Clarkie yeah. after that. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's amazing how it works. Yeah. Something you, a quote that I really liked of yours that you mentioned then but you've also mentioned in another podcast is that um, there's something to be said for not overthinking. Um Huge fan. I, I fully agree. Do you, is that something that you try and also relay to your athletes now? Yeah. Um, and, and how do you do that? It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because it's like, firstly, 
you can't even tell if they're... I mean, you, to some extent, you can tell if they're overthinking yeah. it, but a lot of it goes on in their own mind. They might not be sharing that. But how, how do you help people if they're... Because that's a huge problem many runners face. I think yeah. they overthink it. They get to the end and just think that they did their head in maybe even before they started. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, how, do you, how would you advise someone on how to like, I mean, cut I, that out? <laughs> I loved racing. I mean, if I yeah. had a dollar for everyone being in the best shape of their life before we started a race, like, I would be extremely wealthy. Like, you know, but I used to just be cool, calm, collected. You know, I yeah. used to crack jokes and used to love trying to get in people's heads, you know, yeah. like, and that, that for me was my, my right. mantra. It's yeah. like, if I can be funny and do these things, then I'm not thinking about the race. Um, the, the three worst races I had in my career were three Olympic Games. You know, take away Sydney, unfortunately, I tore a stomach muscle and I certainly didn't go in there with that angst, but certainly Athens and Beijing, I overthought the process. I mean, I was consumed by the Olympics. I was after redemption. You know, I knew that I could be a top 10 runner and, you know, I used to put like little uh, motivational quotes on my bedroom mirror because that'd be the first thing you'd see in the morning and it'd be the last thing you'd see at night. And, you know, I analysed, overanalysed and then psychoanalysed and then by the time I got to the race, I was flat. And, you know, when going into city races and racing in Australia and being around my friends, I could control the narrative, right? Because you're in your your home environment and... You know, just when I got outside of that, I just, I overthought things. So with my athletes, it's always, it's just checking in with them and it's trying to keep things simple. And I can always tell when they're at that point of stress in their body language and in their approaches to me, you know, like whether they snap at something that's extremely like trivial, you know, and so then it's just like trying to change things. I'm like, you know what, like, let's just have the afternoon off tomorrow or, you know what, I did have you down for 12 hills today. Let's just do eight or, you know, you know what, let's just go out and have a beer. Let's just chill. Let's Mm. just like, you know, shoot the breeze and and go with that. So um, everyone is different in how they approach things like, um, they're also different in how they plan with what they want to do. Mm. So for me, just as a coach, I think that's the it's probably the best skill set I bring. I mean, the coaching of training workouts, whether it's doing it my way or another coach's way, it's just training, right? Yeah. And we've seen that everyone that stands on the start line has a different coach and they train differently. We know that food can be different, like whether you're in Mexico, whether you're in Japan, or whether you're in Australia, the food and cultures different um you know and then the technology that we have is accessible to everyone so i think the real like key pin is like having that coach having that confidant having that person you have faith and trust in to help let that go and i keep telling everyone i want to be the rot like let me take on the stress that you've got and let me try and just expunge it out so that you don't have to deal with it like you just run don't think you know i think having athletes that think too much can lead to that overcomplication of overanalyzing and, you know, it leads to their downfall. So if they've got faith in a coach and they believe in the coach, you know, then all of a sudden the coach just maps everything out and then the athlete just takes stock of that. You know, they're confident with that and they move with it. And so, you know, it's one of the things that, you know, coaching when I first started here to my style of coaching just in the last two years seems a lot different. Um you know, in Australia, like we're pretty raw, you do the training, you know, like we used to have the old sticker, get in, sit down, shut up, hold on, you know, and just in today's day and age and with mental health and everything being what it is, you know, you've just got to be, you got to be a lot more delicate. Um, And that's something that I'm not comfortable with, you know, you end up becoming more of a psychologist than an actual coach. So the last two years has been, um, it's been difficult for me to have to just change and adopt some different ways of approaching my coaching with my athletes. 
Um, you know, I took a sabbatical for a, a period of time um, after an unfortunate situation and, you know, I didn't really know if I wanted to get back into coaching and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm back coaching with only a handful of people and, you know, selfishly I'm in my comfort zone with just this handful of people and, you know, I certainly don't want to grow that at the moment um, okay. and I'm enjoying working with the five kids that I have and there's not the stress there because everything's balanced. Once you start to build up a group to eight to 10 to 12, you bring in different personalities and it's so much harder to balance. I mean, I coach like about 50 recreational runners, right? And it's amazing because they all have jobs, they have families, they have stresses in their life. But when they come to get coached by me, like their goal is to break four hours for a marathon. And so they just love the opportunity to talk running or have a beer and have an outlet from the stress of their life. But the elite athletes, this is their life. Yeah. You know, like everything that they're dealing is to be the best that they can be and to eventually try and make Olympic representation or national representation. And so they're just on a knife's edge. And um, I certainly wasn't like that as an athlete. And in Australia, we sort of, you know, we talked about the club system of our sport where we're all in clubs and we know people and we have jobs and, you know, we might meet after work at five o'clock. I mean, here in America, everyone wants to be a professional athlete. So they risk everything, give up jobs and take up life savings from parents to shoot for this one chance of making it. And if they don't make it or they get halfway along their goal and then know that they're not going to make it, then just all of a sudden it unravels. And it's really hard as a coach you know, I don't, I don't make any money being an elite coach and, you know, I give up my time to help these young men and women be the best that they can be and I'm just one version of a coach. Like there's yeah. 50, you know, there's probably like 5,000 different coaches here in the, in the US and we're all different in what we do. Um, athletes, you know, usually want to find a coach and, you know, they've read about it or they've seen an athlete have results and they think that the grass is greener on the other side until they get there. Yeah, yeah. And then six months later, you know, like you're at loggerheads with them um, because they're trying to change you. They're like, well, in college, this worked for me. Or, you know, with my last group and with my last coach, I used to do this workout and it worked for me. And that's when you just know it's not going to work. You know, you're trying to jam a, a round peg into a square hole. So I always say, look, if I'm not the right coach, there are other coaches that will find you. A coach shouldn't have to change you just should know whether you're in line with that coach and you have similar philosophies, you know, similar values and, you know, you have similar work ethics that are going to allow you to do that. Like I'm a blood, sweat and guts guy, you know, like my athletes that I have, that's what they exude and that's why I seem to have, you know, a a comfortable platform at the moment with them and, um, and an enjoyable one. Yeah. And you're a, you were as an athlete and you still are as a coach a big fan of keeping it very simple. You you were you actually mentioned that Steve Jones, who you um, who you know, um, you're a big fan of his very simple training philosophy. And you also try to avoid, I guess maybe not the right word, but um, you don't tend to like athletes to, for example, be looking at splits too much in in, in training and in racing. Um, what sort of technology are you a fan of, including in training and racing, if any? And um, you told a very good story that I heard about a race that you you didn't really look at any splits, but you ended up, I think it was Berlin Marathon, where you ended up running 2.10 mid, but you really, it was quite a surprise to you because you weren't really looking at the splits and you were more just sort of like running to feel. And I'd like to, I think, again, I'd like to talk a bit about this because I'm a true believer in this as well. And I think that ever since I've thrown away um, quite a lot of the data and really analyzing that stuff. I've not only performed, I think, better, I've also enjoyed my running more. Yeah. So um, I'd love to just talk chat for a couple of minutes about that and how you how you implement that in your own training and with your athletes. I think technology has its place, yeah. um, but it's the oversaturation yeah. of technology. So I don't want my guys wearing a GPS going for an easy run, yeah. you know, because 
usually an easy run, you're tired, you've been training hard, you know, you might have had to work the day before, and you get out there and you start running, and then you look at your watch and you're like, what, a five minute K? Or an eight minute mile? Yeah. Oh my God. Can't you know, do that. I can't do that. And then yeah. all of a sudden they run quicker. So then they're changing, like, they're not running like mentally, they're putting stress on their body physically. Yeah. And mental to physical is three to one. So your mind's always going to control your body. Yeah. And that's where people dig a hole for themselves or they get sick because they just keep pushing. And so when you have that data at hand, it can be troublesome. Now, when I talked about that marathon progressive run, like, yeah, you need the splits because you need to know what pace you're running and you've got to hold that pace. Uh, when you're on the track, you're looking at splits every 400. When you're doing K reps, you're doing that. So I think it has its place. Um, and we certainly use GPS on targeted workouts, but I don't like it on long runs and easy runs because once you start to see the data change and it's coming down, you get like a little endorphin rush. And yeah. all of a sudden you want to go quicker and you want to go quicker and you want to go quicker. Now, when I used to run in Ballarat with Mona and the group up there, like there'd be 30 guys and we just all run and talk. Mm. You know, like, guys were only going to turn up and do like, anywhere from like 18 to 21 kilometers and like we're doing 36. So we'd run half an hour to meet them. We'd run with them, have a couple of stops along the way where they'd go to the toilet, we'd run back. But it was social, it was fun and it was an outlet from the the stress of the the week of training leading in. Um, So I'm trying to get a balance with that with the athletes but I think heart rate is good Um, and I don't mind heart rate on easy days to slow the athlete down. You know, And then if the heart rate is too high, making them come down. I think heart rate's a good indicator. I didn't use that in my in my time, but certainly, you know, from a lot of the stuff that I look at now um, with athletes and them being on that edge, you know, they might not talk about it or they might not show it, but heart rate will indicate that. Yep. Um, I think certainly getting blood tests um, mm. every three to six months, particularly in Boulder and at altitude. So, you know, iron depletion is the biggest common thing that happens here with athletes. Um, so making sure that their iron level is great and then also taking a look at you know red blood count uh, red blood cell count and white blood cell count yeah. um, so I think that's important um, and then everything else is just up to determination on what an athlete may think that they need I mean I've done altitude studies and you know I've done heat chamber yep. studies I mean I just feel like that it was just more information that I needed right you yeah, just get sure. out there and run but yep. there are some athletes that they need that data because they're a little bit more analytical yeah. um, with how they approach their training. So for me, I've always just found that it's more detrimental than um, beneficial. Yeah. Um, and it's not that I don't understand it. It's just that then you read too much into it. I mean, we see people now looking at Stravas and, you know, people are posting their training out there. And, you know, what I, do you think about that? <laughs> well, I've said to my athletes that like, I look at it all yeah. and I can tell you which athletes are going to not run well. Okay. They've pretty much ran their race. Like I see them doing workouts that is much faster than they've ever raced in their life and you know that they've just ran their race mm-hmm. in their training. And then when they get to the race, it's all those other psychological things that they've got to deal with and they can't get up for it. So, um, you know, we keep everything pretty tight because, I mean, we don't want everyone knowing yeah. exactly what we're doing and yeah. I think there's something to be said coming in under the radar like we did with, with Jake. And yeah. um, So, like I said, it's keeping... It, controlling what we can control then looking at what other people are doing and then just, you know, for me as a coach, it's also good to see as well. Um, but the the technologies that we have really come down to the individual. And as I said, I like to use GPS when it's needed and mm. heart rate when it's needed and then get the blood tests when it's, um, when it's needed as well. Sure. 
Apologies for sort of bouncing around between questions, but I guess some of the things you're saying are prompting me to ask other questions that I'm curious to know <laughs> your opinion about. Um, going back about half an hour ago when you said um, leading into a, into a, let's just take, for example, a marathon, um, you, you mentioned that you might have a couple of races leading in and that's how you structure your three-hour run and then the 18-mile progression runs. Um, what do you think is an ideal uh, lead-in two months into a marathon in terms of um, selecting another race? Um, would it be a 10k or half marathon and when would that be that's something that's always interested me because coaches have different ideas about that some say a half marathon five or six weeks before I've personally experimented in the last two marathons that I've run which have been big personal best doing a 10k race the week before of which some would say is too close but I felt like it's been a good sharpen up for me and I've run PBs both times in both the 10k's and the marathons Um, but then again I heard you know I'm not running at the anywhere near the times that you were so what is your ideal lead in there of course it, it doesn't always work ideally because the races uh the dates of the races are out of your control but if you could control that what would you do well ironically when i ran 209 at lake beer i'd flown to new zealand the week before and ran 27.51 for 10k on the track so one week before one week before so go. i flew to new yeah. zealand did that come back actually no i tell her like it was two weeks before okay um i flew there came back did a couple of minor workouts and then i flew to uh flew to uh to japan but um I made the mistake in 2011 um, when I was trying to make my fourth Olympics. Um, I went and ran the New York City half marathon, which was four weeks before London. And I had a day out. Like I ran 63 minutes. I beat Ryan Hall. I mean, granted, he didn't have a great race, but I threw myself in the mix with all these kids. And I come off that and I was just like, man, like I'm I'm ready to roll when yeah. we get to London. And... Um, I went to London and our pacemaker dropped out and there was just me and another guy and anyway I got to 25k and the wheels come off and we went through in like 64 minutes it was like high 63 low 64s right and uh, the wheels come off and I ended up DNFing at 30k and then obviously my chance of trying to make the Olympics was was gone and so uh, Dick Telford I huge huge fan of and you know I was talking to Dick and Dick was like, yeah, we never let the guys do a half marathon within six weeks. You know, four weeks is too close. And when I went back and I looked at it, like, he, I found that to be fairly accurate yep. on, you know, because it's the effort that you put in, the recovery you've got to take, but you're also still in the critical phases of your marathon prep. Of you course. know, like your marathon prep's leading up until two weeks to go. Yep. And so that can derail it. So I would be thinking that I'd like to have something done eight to six weeks before. If it happens to be 10 weeks before, that's a great block for a half marathon. And then I'm a big fan of two to three weeks out running a like a five mile or 10K race yeah. as a rust buster, you know, like get those legs sharpened up. Um, when I ran New York, which was my last marathon in 2014, um, I'd got myself in unbelievable shape um, as my last race. And that's all I focused on was just like making this one count. And I ran a 10K in Denver uh, two weeks before. And there was a lot of downhill, which I wasn't expecting. And one of the problems I've had with my old busted up body is my SIJ, SIJ joint. And um, unfortunately, that flared up. And so I went into New York, banged up, unfortunately. So I think you've got to be selective. As you get older, you just can't go and bang out a 10K race two weeks before. Right. But as I said, you know, when I ran 209, I flew to New Zealand and ran 27.51 on the track. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, looking at everything... and. That was the problem that I have as I got older is I kept comparing everything I did in my prime. Yep. You know, I never started to put in gradients of, all right, we need to adjust this 10% now because I'm older. Yep. I just would always want to go to the paint every single time that I would train. Um, 
because I was broken, you know, yep. like that's, that was my mentality the whole time and mm. hence why, you know, the latter part of my career I was injured and I was always like chasing to get myself healthy and, um, but yeah, like I said, looking at it all now, it's just like, yeah, I could have been a little smarter on that. <laughs> but yeah. I think for racing, I got it right at that time. Like I remember before I ran 209 at London, I did a five mile race in uh, just outside of London. Um and ran really, really well on that, and then that set me up for. Uh, was that the week before? No, uh, it was two weeks two before. before. Yeah, yeah. I, I ran 20, 24 low on a really hilly course, and then of course I ran two oh nine at London again. Yeah. Um, that so I found at that time in, in my peak, it certainly worked if I had that, and that's what you were focused on. Was like, all right, I've got to get to this race. I mean, I ran Balmoral Castle, like so. There was there's a lot of things that I, I had done in that peak part of my career that worked that. As I got older, I tried to replicate it, and it didn't. Sure, sure. Um, strength training. Uh, what are your thoughts on incorporating that? What did you do as an athlete? How do you, if you're able to share anything, um, as the athletes you currently coach, um, did you, as an athlete, lift weights? Um, I, I do know that you did quite a bit of core stability work. Um, this is a very, uh, what's the word, um, not controversial, but uh, I guess coaches have many different opinions about this. Yeah. Uh, I've spent quite a bit of time in Kenya where they don't do any weights over there, but they, of course they run so much on hilly routes. Um, so what is your opinion on sort of both lifting weights but also strength training in a sense of doing core stability as well? Yeah, well, we've certainly seen a, a swift change in um, incorporating strength work yep. now. I mean, we see a lot of athletes using kettlebells and, yes. and things like that to help. Um for me, you know, we talked about my training. I was doing 150-mile weeks or 240K weeks, and I was always just too tired to go and yeah. lift weights. But I was doing core work, you know, twice a week. Um, when I got older and I started having a few injuries, I started incorporating Pilates uh, into that. Uh, but I have my athletes doing gym work twice a week. Okay. Um, and I usually have them doing that, like, as a replacement of a second run. Mm. So, I mean, I used to run twice a day every day. And so the middle of the day, you're resting or you're getting physical therapy and massage. Um, but with my guys, you know, they do a maximum um, five doubles. So there's two doubles that they don't, don't have in. Yep. Um, and so that's why I factor a lot of that in. And, you know, certainly research has shown that um, there is the benefit to that. But I guess it comes down to A, who's instructing it. Yep. And then two, when you're incorporating it, you yep. know, and, and how you incorporate it. I mean, I think the most important thing to remember is that as a runner, you've got to run. Mm. And that's, you know, we talk about food placement, right? You know, yep. 60% carbs and 30% proteins and 10% minerals. So, you know, that's the same with running. You want to make sure that the bulk of your week is your running, which is what you're supposed to do. And then you start factoring in the percentages of like, all right, well, I need to get a massage, Maybe once a fortnight I need to do strength work, you know, I need to stretch, you know. So um, they're, they're the things that athletes have to have the onus to do. Right. Um, and if they're not prepared to do it, they're eventually going to break down because as you get older, obviously we don't have natural, you know, HGH that's yeah. developing in our body. And then all of a sudden structurally we start to break down and then we start to become weak through our, through our hips and lower back and glutes and... That's why we always see people having, you know, like sciatic issues and SIJ problems um, just as a result of the breakdown. So trying to keep that control is only going to lead to better form, better biomechanics, and also efficiency when you run because you're trying to get your body to stay in that form for as long as it can yeah. before fatigue comes in and you break down. Yeah, sure. Great answer. Um, any other one percenters that you feel are important um, in terms of, you know, we can talk about, you briefly talked about stretching their diet 
um, you know, what other things do you place importance on as a coach, as an athlete? Yeah. Yeah, so I think the the 1% as I always bring to the table with my athletes is their diet um, and they all eat well, rest, which is rest within itself is a workout. Mm. You know, like if people could actually factor the effort that they put into their workouts into a rest day, it would help balance that equilibrium out a little bit with them. Um, You know, stretching, um, you know, obviously um, uh, rehab and what I mean by that, like physical therapy and massage and self-care that they need. Um, and then also like social life, hmm. you know, like, um, I've seen athletes that just aren't prepared to give up their social life. And that could be, oh, I'm going on a holiday this weekend, or I'm going to see my friend in, you know, Louisiana, and I've got friends that have flown in and we're having a weekend in Vegas. And, you know, as an elite athlete, you've got to sacrifice, like you have to give up things in order to be successful you know, like I've missed weddings and I've missed um, birthdays and I've missed births of babies and I've lost friends over situations where they're like, it's just running, mm. you know, but it was my job. Like that was my yeah. passion. That was my goal. And I always wanted to make sure I left no stone unturned. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to have that conversation with family or friends, you know, about that what you do I respect but yeah. what I do like this is the same like it's the, the same respect but you know particularly in Australia we don't really look at sport in that elite bracket yeah. right it's just like it's just running like yeah. you know if someone goes off and wins the local fun run you know it's just they see them as someone that could run at the Olympics you yeah. know like they're the local hero wins the meat pack he's on the back page of the newspaper and yeah. you know everyone thinks that that guy's a legend and you know so it's hard for people to actually get respect on what they do I mean, if you look at the recent, you know, um, Melbourne Track Classic, I mean, there's no crowd. Like, mm-hmm. people aren't following the sport, you know, and if they're not following the sport, how can you get people to appreciate exactly what you do and the sacrifices that you make and, you know, the commitment that's needed? And you only have your career for 10 years, right? I mean, I was lucky I had it for 20, but let's just use a 10-year window. And so these young men and women are putting everything they've got into it and the sacrifices that come with it sometimes have a cost, you know, and um, and then that's why you see after runners' careers, you know, you start, see some people struggling, obviously, with that mental well-being because that's all they knew and then they've got to integrate back into a normal, normal life and, yep. you know, reconnect with friends that, you know, they probably got upset because didn't, you didn't go to their wedding. And so, um, so I get all that and so... If they can take care of all the one percenters and get everything right and make sure that this is their goal, like this is what they chose, and as a result, there's a there's a payment clause that yeah. comes with that, yep. the commitment part of it. I think that'll better set them as they're, as they're moving along. And I always say to my athletes, like you chose me. Yeah. Like I don't I don't go out and solicit athletes. I don't poach athletes. Yeah. Like if you want me to coach, you, I'll coach you. But these are the rules, yeah. you know, and just abide by the rules, and we'll have a good good friendship. You know, like I I don't. I don't make money from coaching, so but I've still got to pay to put you know fuel in the car, and I've got to pay for my air flights to go to races, and you know I've got to you know pay for hotels when I go to races, and so I think you know there are, there are a million people like me that yeah. are paying out of our pocket to support young men and women's dreams, 
um, and just doing it because we're passionate about it and we love it. And I was lucky that I had people like Pat Cloessy and Chris Wardlaw and Deke and Mona and all these amazing advocates that were just huge supporters of you know what I did. And you know, so for me, I just feel like that this is my um, this is my payback. Yeah. You know, back to the sport for the sport being kind to me. You were certainly in an era of uh, a golden era of Australian running, that's for sure. <laughs> um, all right, we'll, we'll, begin, we'll begin to wrap it up with two last topics I want to talk about. Just quickly, the first one is any other lessons that you think you learned from transferring from being an athlete to a coach? Like you mentioned that one thing that you probably that, that hurt you in your own words was not having a coach. Um, anything else come to mind that you think that you thought, okay, well, I'm actually going to, I was wrong there as an athlete doing this particular thing, and now I'm going to apply that as a coach? Yeah, that doesn't think, have to be anything, but if there is something, it'd be good to know. Yeah, I think there's a time and place for grinding on yep. the training. Yep. And um, I think there's a time and place to like really make athletes have to go on the external part of themselves to hurt. Yep. Um, and then just being smart. Like I, I just grind it, you know, all the time. Yep. I was just out there and I just I was just competitive with everything that I did. So, you know, being a coach, you know, you see like where are the times when you need to hold them and other times when you need to fold them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, being smarter with that. Um, but I think overall, like just trying to bring just better balance, yeah, you know, okay. like, cause as an athletes that that's just all we're about, like mm. that's, that's just what we're in and the world's moving at a, um, an extremely fast pace and, um, you know, and you, I get that we need to, to move with it, but sometimes it's okay just to stop and smell the, smell the flowers yeah. and just appreciate, you know, the choice that you made and where you got to and what you've become and, you know, I think for me that it, it's taken me a number of years after my career to actually appreciate my career, you know, mm-hmm. and um, actually look at it with a different view and and be proud, you know. Like, yeah. I, 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 for years, was just so disappointed I didn't break that Australian record in the marathon and that's what I wanted and that's what I had my heart set on and yet, you know, we talk about a whole heap of other things that I did that I was successful at and I just... You know, I focused on one thing when there's like, you know, probably half a dozen to a dozen things that I should be proud of. So, yeah. like I said, I think that just comes with a bit more maturity. And, yeah. you know, I certainly needed to get out of Australia when I did. Um, you know, I sort of feel like that, you know, that case of sort of being a big fish in a small pond. And I know I was just starting to get disenchanted with things and just yeah. I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then sort of coming to America, it was just like, all right, I can be me. And, you know, no one knows me, you know, I mean, obviously it's different now after 11 years and, you know, having had sports stalls and, you know, putting on running events and coaching athletes, but, you know, it's just, um, I just sort of needed that. And of course, now I look back and, you know, America is the leader of so many things. It's so big with everything and it's so polarizing and it can be extremely um, aggressive at times and unforgiving at times. But then, I look at Australia and I was like, that's what I always thought Australia was like. You know, yeah, yeah. Australia is so tiny and there's like, there's nothing there that needs to be on that platform because yeah. we are small players, you know? Yeah. And so I know I just, I look at things with a, a much different perspective and like I said, probably a much greater appreciation of like how our system is and what we have and what we've done and what we've gone through, um, you know? And I, I certainly believe that our sport in Australia could be better. You know, and I think everyone agrees with that. And I think there's a lot. Um, I see, you know, obviously board members that are leaving that have been previous athletes that I've always had hope could, that could change it. But, you know, when you're getting people like your David Colbert's and Tamsin Lewis and all these people that are leaving and we've still got the same bureaucrats or different bureaucrats but with the same mission yeah. of just really not, um, I guess, promoting the sport to where it needs to be. Yeah. 
um, it's a problem. And now that we have our partnership with Little Athletics, and obviously we created a partnership with our um, um, uh, all abilities athletes, like, um, or sorry, disability athletes, like there should be much more canvassing. And, you know, like I think there should be an overhaul with, you know, how the funding is set up and how our AA body is and, you know, just to better present itself for the future moving forward. Um, But it's always going to be those people that just, it's all about ego and glory, right? Like they're going to be there. They're going to run the sport. They have no understanding of the sport. They'll bring in all these ROIs and, that's not what it is for Australians, you know, like the people that have been doing it are passionate about it. Sorry, the coaches and, you know, um, some of the previous athletes, they're passionate about it. They love it. Like they come from a different place than what an administrator comes from, you know, and they have more passion to do it. But just for some reason in the 20, 30 years, there just hasn't been that synchronicity between the two, the two parts. So, you know, I'd hope we see that change and it'll need to, because obviously, I said I looked at the crowds at uh, a few of the track meets and, you know, I remember when I broke Clarkie's record, you know, yeah. I remember Mona crowd surfing in 96 <laughs> after he ran 13.25 and, um, you know, we had Paul Beatock in the race, you know, the Olympic silver medalist and remember him crowd, like I, those were the, the, the glory days, right? And everyone's yeah. like, ah, oh, you know, it's just a different era. It's true, but like, it's entertainment. Yeah. You know, and people came because they wanted to be entertained and they loved it. And, you know, so hopefully we get that right and the sport moves in the direction that it needs to. But even though I'm here and I don't know how long I'll stay here for, I certainly take a, a keen interest in, you know, everything back home. And I'm still an Australian citizen. I'm not an American citizen. Still got citizen. your accent after all yeah, this time Yeah, as I'm well. still, still, I mean, <laughs> my kids aren't. They've got an American accent. Okay. But yeah, like I said, it, um, I don't know when we will plan to, you know, potentially go back and yeah but like when i do you know i'd love to you know still be connected to the sport and yeah. i'm loving seeing obviously the the young crew of mm. you know genevieve and you know, like i said ryan gregson and mcsween and patrick tiernan and all those guys that you know are just obviously the uh the next level of uh of kids coming through just you know just loving enjoying watching them yeah for sure thanks so much for sharing that um lastly we spoke about this off record that i'd love to just put on record because I found your point of view on it so interesting and it's it's you know when you were racing it was just all about blood sweat and who's the fastest guy now these these shoes have come into play where you know a lot of different opinions about these but I really liked hearing your opinion on it because you came from racing in the in the 90s and early 2000s where that factor just wasn't it wasn't there you know it was everyone was racing in these shoes that had a stack height of under 20 millimeters not that you even really knew about what that was it was just here's a flat wear it now all the you know now there's this this big controversy between oh am I a Nike sponsored athlete or am I not and if I'm not then what do I do because the vapor flies are obviously an advantage. Um, to wrap this interview up, I would love to hear on the record about your opinion about this because um, yeah it, it would be interesting and if if I was in your position it would absolutely bother me because all of a sudden it's not really about. You know, when you see these times coming out, it's well, did he wear the vapor flies or didn't he? And you know, like yeah, asterisk, I think is the word he used before we got on the yeah. So yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we used to have an asterisk if someone ran a course that was point to point or downhill. So yeah. you know, there should be an asterisk now with people that uh, have the vapor flies. But there is absolutely no doubt, and this comes from a quorum of the majority of people that have been in the sport for a long time. Yeah. And we're talking past athletes and you know coaches and everything that there is an advantage and. We've had sports scientists break everything down and it's amazing how Nike is able to manipulate the world athletics and governing bodies. You know, we just saw the stack height all of a sudden become this magical number of it has to be less than 40 mils and the alpha fly is 39.5, right? 
And By the way, as a size 8.5. You're correct. Right? So <laughs> when it's a size 12, it's like 47 or something like everyone that. Everyone warned them that they just did not want to address this. Yeah. And I'm seeing 218 guys run 213, 214. Like, we have seen more personal bests across the globe. And we're seeing world records. We're seeing European records. We're seeing just this plethora of records. And the training hasn't changed. Diet hasn't changed. I mean, they've changed, but they're minimal. And then we look at, obviously, now, like, is it doping or is it the shoes? And, you know, there's no mistaking that doping has a huge problem in our sport. You know, Africa, you know, and Kenya in particular, Ethiopia, are at the forefront for distance running with that. But when it comes to the shoes, it's changed the game. And none of us are excited. Like, Kipchoge break two hours, and most of us didn't care. Mm. It was just like, oh, great, yeah, so we had this advantage. And, you know, I'll always look at what shoes people are wearing, and it's hard for me to get amped because... They finish the race, they're high-fiving, they're all happy. Like, they've just run a damn marathon, right? Like, you should be coming up the straight, your face is grimacing, like you're hurting, yeah. you've, you've gone to the world, your body started to break down. You know, it's that blood, gut, sweat and tears. And they jump across the line, they're all happy, and then they're back running in two days. And, you know, I've tried the shoes, and it's just like a trampoline. And everyone's like, oh, it's got a carbon plate in it. And, you know, but it also allows the athlete not to biomechanically break down. So as they're starting to fatigue, they've still got this great phobe and rebounding action to help propel them forward. Mm -hmm. You know, because normally when you get tired, your your hips drop and you start to sink and you then go from being up on your toes to slapping, right? And then you start heel striking. These shoes just continually just keep pushing you forward. And, you know, like 90% of people that are wearing them are all running faster than they've ever run. So we have to look at the last 100 years and ask, has there ever been a period where we're talking millions and millions of people that have all ran in one year like these remarkable times? And so the question gets asked, and, you know, like, is it mechanical doping? And, you know, as an old school athlete, yeah, I'm not a fan of it because I want to have the athletes that are racing compared to me with what I ran. I compared myself to Dika Stella. I compared myself to Monaghetti. You know, I compared myself to Derek Clayton. You know, like now all of a sudden you're comparing yourself to athletes that could never run out of sight on a dark night. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden they're two minutes off you as far as times go. And you're like, what? And when you've got athletes that have had sponsorships and long-standing sponsorships with other companies and they're leaving their sponsorships just to wear the shoes. Yeah, look at Japan, just at the Hanoi Ekaden Relay that was just on recently. 84% wore the Nike Vaporflies. I heard the ASICS teams were running in the Vaporflies. Correct. ASICS and Mizuno, <laughs> who are the biggest companies in Japan, in Japan yeah. are struggling because of this epidemic. And it's not good for the sport. No. It, it's definitely not. It's great for Nike. And don't get me wrong, Nike just put it out there. Right? They, yeah. they didn't do anything wrong. No. World Athletics and the governing body, they are completely at fault here. They did not stop it. They had been given so many warnings. But when Nike's in your back pocket, you know, Seb Coe, I don't think he's done jack for our sport. And yet he's a Nike employee. And, of course, it's always going to just keep getting passed and passed and passed to the point now where they can't take it all back. So they're like, let's just make a new rule. Okay, there it's going to be. You yeah. know, it's like the five k. They scrapped all the five k records, and the world record last year was thirteen twenty one. And then all of a sudden, we saw um, Czechai run twelve fifty one, and everyone's like, it's a twenty seven second. Like people have world actually record. run faster than that. I was like, no, before. no. Sammy Kipkata ran thirteen minutes at Carlsbad, like back in the uh, in the early two yeah. thousands. Like, so like I said, and I talk about our sport in Australia. Like, you just got to look at it at a global yeah. global level. I mean, dropping the ten k's, looking at dropping the five k's. You know, like our sport is just in a um, 
in a crisis and you know it's sad as someone that had come through as a young child doing track and field to then able to do it at an elite level and are now coaching in it you know I've been in it for for 35 years it just it's just sad to see it just be on this cusp that it could go either way yeah. you know and so I certainly think that uh, there needs to be an overhaul with that I'm glad that I actually see now um, a couple of athlete groups that are now advocating for other athletes and they're going to take stance on things and mm. if it means they've got to boycott Diamond League meets then so be it they're, they're going to do it um, so yeah hopefully the, the voices will be with the athletes and we'll see change because again these administrators and bureaucrats they're just not in line with the passion that the athletes have and the coaches too I might add Lee Troop, thanks so much for all of your insight. Um, super interesting for me to listen to, and of course, all the listeners, I'm sure, will will take a lot from it. Um, to wrap up, I guess the way that I normally wrap up interviews is 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 uh, is talking about where people are on social media. If not, are you? I actually didn't back check that. Is that something that like? Do you have an Instagram or a Facebook that people can learn from you, or is that something that yeah, you try I to mean, stay a bit more private about? Or yeah, no Twitter. Yep. I think it's Twitter. Just yep. Run Troopy, and I think Instagrams. Yep at Lee Troop 73 and yep. I have Facebook but you know a lot of the content that I put out there like if it's not with my family to show my family and friends back home in, a, in Australia what we're doing it's usually just about my athletes so I certainly don't sure. use it as a as a portal for me or to talk about me I mean my career's over I'm done I'm just yeah. you know I'm pretty much dust now so yep. you know everything else that I put out there is more in uh, in context to just where I am in life with family and then obviously with uh, with my coaching and my athletes so um, but I was certainly on other feeds and I certainly have a, a good following of people that still follow you know what I do um, I wish I had more to, to, to put out there but um, yeah. you know like I said it's uh, the world's become our social media yeah. stream and that's yeah. a way of connecting right yeah. so um, so I'm an open book and anyone can follow what I'm doing and awesome. yeah, it's all, all good cool appreciate your time so much Lee all Cheers. the best thanks mate